You said you had enough back, but instead you attacked. You got me out of my head. I won't go and solve this time. We'll catch you and your crimes will be shining the light on you. Welcome to Cold Case MHS, where real education meets real life. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, an instructor of Cold Gates MHS. And I'm your co-host, Gabby. Thank you for listening. If you've been listening to our podcast, you have noticed a change in co-host every so often. Well, as my co-hosts graduate, I have to find new ones. Today, I want to introduce Gabby as my new co-host, and I thank you for helping us out. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be a part of the podcast and to help put these people's stories back out there. As a young man, you're always looking for those people who can guide you through life. Many of us are blessed with a father or older brothers who set the standard of a great role model or mentor. They support you when you need it, and they set you straight when you start to veer off course. As we get older, we see others who set a good example for us, like coaches, teachers, parents of our friends, and many others along the way. Unfortunately, not everyone has that opportunity to encounter these types of people. Young men crave that need to belong and look up to someone, even if they think they can do it on their own. Not having the role model makes it easy for people with not so good intentions to draw that eager young man under their wing. The flash of money, the apparent respect from other young men, and the feeling of belonging will pull that individual into a life that becomes dangerous. Raymond Wells was that young man looking for a place to belong, and his path crossed with a very destructive mentor. The night is June 28, 1999. You're driving around with your friends at around 2 a.m., and this car ride ends up being your last. This is the story of Raymond Wells III. Raymond was an 18-year-old who lived in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, he was a quiet kid. He stayed in a lot, didn't get into much trouble. He was a ladies' man, but he did have a girlfriend at the time. Uh, he was working for his GED and was trying to get out of the game, which is a very possible reason of why this attack happened to him. Raymond lived with his mom and sister. He would go in between the houses whenever his mom would get on him about his chores. He often liked to play video games in his living room with his friends. He had a lot of close relationships with the gang leader because he lived right down the street from him. The gang leader would always go over to his house and talk with his mom and sister. While his parents were divorced, Raymond did not really see his dad at all. So this unfortunately is what happens a lot of times in troubled families, especially in an environment that they lived in. Tell us a little bit about what you think that did for him. Well, because he's like a typical teenager, Whenever he would get in trouble, he could have his sister's house or his mom's house to go back and forth to. Usually he's looking for someone to like lean on and like give him comfort, and sometimes that can be people with not-so-good backgrounds. Right, and unfortunately when you talk about kids of that age, those people oftentimes may be involved in illegal things such as gangs. What happened on June 28, 1999? Raymond was stabbed 27 times on the left side of his body, then thrown out of the car with his shoes propped up next to him. Then he was drugged under the cars approximately 70 feet as the car fled this crime scene. So in class we talk about the different types of murders, stabbings, gunshots, things like that. The fact that he was stabbed 27 times, what does that tell you? It tells me that it's a personal crime and that they didn't really have any intentions of getting it over quickly. Yeah, and I think one of the things about that is it doesn't fit a gang-type violence. Most of the time, if a gang is going to get rid of somebody, they just shoot them. So you're right. This one seems very personal. 
Even though Raymond lived in Cincinnati, he was killed in Sharonville, Ohio, which is about a 20-minute drive from Cincinnati. He was killed in a little cul-de-sac called Sharon Woods Court, which like I said is a little and very narrow with very poor lighting in the cul-de-sac. One of the reasons he could have been in Sharonville was because there was a frequent hangout spot that his gang would like to go to every once in a while that was across the street from where he was killed. This hangout spot was known as Zavo's Bar, Lounge, and Grill. Another reason they might have been in Sharonville is because of Sharon Woods, a local park that has 700, 730 acres of woods and lake. We think that they might have been taking Raymond to do whatever they planned there at Sherwin's under the cover of the darkness and the woods. After talking to one of the detectives that worked on our case, he was able to pinpoint two possible cars that were used in the stabbing and killing of Raymond Wells. The 1981 Buick Regal and the 1989 Buick Riviera. So the two cars that he's referring to were actually the cars that the prime suspect or person of interest that the police officer thinks was involved had access to. We don't know if these cars were actually the ones that were used, but it is a strong possibility. Both cars are very small cars, and depending on the size of the people that you have in the car, you can only fit about three to four people in it. Now, the differences really only lay in the Buick Regal. The Buick Regal has a front middle seat that would have been easy access to Raymond since Raymond usually sat in the front seat with his friends. Buick Regal also had a bigger trunk space, which could have also led to it having a bigger back end, so that would have led to having more legroom in the back for the people that would have sat in the back of the car. Even though the Buick Regal has a bigger back end when it comes to the trunk space, the legroom is still very minimal like it is in the Buick Riviera. And when it comes to the tops of the cars, they hang very low compared to the other cars that were made back in the day. So we believe that the people that were in the cars and that were involved were anywhere between 5'8 to 5'10" because we believe anybody that was taller and was bigger, it would have, they would have had a lot of trouble stabbing Raymond 27 times. We believe that Raymond was killed in the 1981 Buick Regal, solely because it had that front middle seat and would have been easier access for Raymond to be stabbed in. Compared to if it was in the Buick Riviera and everyone was in the back seat, there would have been a possibility of other people being stabbed in the process of Raymond being stabbed. So with the police investigation, it was a very long and hard process. They did arrest one 16-year-old shortly after the murder happened, but with an alibi, they couldn't really do anything with that. Another thing is they interviewed tons of people, uh, gang members, girlfriends, family. Stories were all over the place, but they didn't have evidence to get somebody with one of those stories. Uh, one of the main things that really popped out to us was the fact that one of the people of interest had called Raymond's girlfriend and told, Ra and told her that Raymond was dead before the police even had the chance to call Raymond's mom. So this information can be really important. There's something really strange about the fact that he was able to give that information to Raymond's girlfriend before Raymond's mother even was told by the police. What does that tell you about him? Well, that tells me that either information was leaked somewhere in the process or that he had prior knowledge which of means, his crime. Well, yeah. Which means he was probably there, right? Yeah, he was probably uh, there. So the other issue with that, too, is that this individual also had made a pass at Raymond's girlfriend, which shows you that he was directly connected between the two. So did he commit the crime? We don't know that. But sure, kind of strange that he knew that information before anybody else. 
When we first picked out this case earlier in the year, we wanted to start by reaching out to people who we could get a, who we could get a hold of and who we can get more information for about Raymond. And one of the first people we were able to get a hold of was Detective Wilson of the Sharonville Police Department. And we had multiple interviews with him throughout the year and he gave us a great amount of information. And most of the information that you are hearing today through this podcast is through Detective Wilson. So if you do have any questions or any comments, you can reach out to him through the Sharonville Police Department. And we thank him for giving us the information. And the second people we were going to try to get a hold of was Raymond's family, uh, specifically his mother and sister. So we tried to reach out to his mother, and when we tried to reach out to his mother, his mother is very closed off about Raymond and, and is still grieving about Raymond's death. So we wanted to respect that, and we backed off of that immediately because we didn't want any conflicts between Raymond's family and us. And then we tried with the sister, and the sister started by saying she'll think about it. But as time went on, we didn't hear back from her, so we kind of backed off that one because we also wanted to respect the boundaries and we want to respect her uh, grieving processes. So those were the two main roadblocks that we ran into throughout this case, was that we couldn't get a hold of the family, so we weren't able to get all the information that we wanted to. And then the dad, like Nick said, is still in the picture, but he does have a fairly, but he does have a fairly violent history, so we didn't want to risk our safety for, for the interview. We interviewed some reporters and they gave us some good information too, but the main person we were able to get a hold of was Detective Wilson. So in this class, one of the things we try to do is get the students to communicate with people that are involved with the case as much as they possibly can. And the reason we do that is we want to get as much information out about the case and about the individuals so that if there is somebody out there that knows anything, we'll step up and say something. Now, in this case, they were able to get Detective Wilson to talk to them, show them crime scene photos and things like that. They were very cooperative. And I think part of that reason is that they're in a situation now where this case has been going on for so long that they feel that if we get out the information, maybe the right person will hear it and possibly step up and say something to them. Whereas I know in other cases, that's not always the same. And especially in your case, how is yours a little bit different? Yeah, so we had zero uh, pretty much zero uh, police information. We got, our FOIA request got denied. All we could have was the initial incident report, whereas we contacted the family. And, I mean, at first they were a little weary, which, I mean, I get it, we're a high school class. But eventually they opened up and they told us, they gave us as much information as they could. And they gave us, like, pictures and we're very cooperative. Right, and I think that is just how these cases work. In your particular case, the family wanted to talk about their father. They wanted to talk about the case because they felt possibly he wasn't getting the the press or the attention that yeah. he deserved. And then I think possibly in this case, maybe they just got tired of talking about it. And who knows? We're talking about gang situations. Maybe they're living in a little bit of fear as, as well. One of the possible motives at the time was Raymond's girlfriend. Uh, the gang leader at the time that Raymond was in had an interest in Raymond's girlfriend and he consistently would like to talk to her. After Raymond was killed, he no longer talked to the girlfriend as much. Another possible motive was Raymond leaving the gang. Raymond was trying to get his GED to join the military and he stopped hanging around a lot of people that were involved in the gang. So now we're going to get into our theories and what we believe happened on that night. Before we do get into those theories though, we'd look, we would like to state that we are not accusing any of the people that have been involved or anything like that, and that our theories are just strictly based off the information that we have received and found out. 
One of the theories that we found from the information that we were given was that Raymond of the night of the murder was at an apartment complex with one of his good friends and his good friend was inside getting with a girl and at the time when his friend was inside Raymond was seen outside hanging out with two other girls just chatting it up when all of a sudden a car pulled up and picked up Raymond and that car was never identified nor was the person inside the car identified so when his best friend came outside after he was done getting with the girl Raymond was not there when he asked around nobody gave his friend information about where Raymond went we believe that Raymond was told that he was going to go to Zavos from the apartment complex Zavos being the bar, lounge, and grill that they often had attended to as a group. As they had passed Zavos in Sharonville, this is when we believe Raymond started to worry. Then the attackers carried it out as they pulled into a cul-de-sac just past Zavos, as we, as we had mentioned. So our last theory is that they were going to smoke at Sharon Woods and just made the wrong turn. And our reasoning for that is because Raymond was killed, with T and when he was killed, when they tested his body, he did have THC in his body. So he was high when he died, so it very well could have been that they were going to go to Sharon Woods to carry out with the murder, but just missed the turn, because Sharon Woods is literally one street down from the cul-de-sac that he was killed in. Cold Case MHS, Monsters and Demons, is written by the Mason High School Cold Case students. The editing is done by current student Lydia Lisko and produced by me. The artwork for this podcast was created by students from the MHS Digital Design Interns. The theme song, Believe Me, was written and performed by MHS student Alexa Dahl. Thank you for listening to Episode 6, The Destructive Mentor. Please tune in to Episode 7 when we discuss the murder of Angela Hannaway. Unfortunately, her lifestyle put her and many other women like her in the presence of an addictive killer. You said you had no